Hi everyone, and welcome to Now and Then. It's Stephen Burrell here. Today, Sandy and I are together in person with our guest for once in County Durham, where I live. Yes, hi everybody. Um, we're with Richard Bliss, who's an artist and tailor based in the north of England. Um, he's been a campaigner for LGBTQ plus rights and gender equality and was elected as Newcastle's first out gay city councillor in 1988. I should say we're recording this episode from Bishop Auckland Town Hall, which is host to a contemporary art gallery. And as an aside, Bishop Auckland not only has a mining art gallery reflecting its history, but also a Spanish gallery with a renowned collection of Golden Age Spanish art, and, and more in fact. So it's definitely worth a visit. Yeah, and Richard currently has an exhibition here uh, in the Contemporary Gallery at Bishop Auckland Town Hall called The Quest for the Perfect Shirt, which we've just been looking around together. It's made up of over 40 shirts which Richard has created in order to try and make sense of masculinity, uh, often using his sewing machine in public spaces through conversations with individuals and workshops with community groups. So hi, Richard, and thank you very much for coming on Now and Then. Uh, lovely shirt, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Um, yeah, so to begin with, could you perhaps explain to us why you called your exhibition The Quest for the Perfect Shirt? Um, quest is a really uh, unusual word, I think. We don't talk about quests in everyday life very much. And it started because I was... I, I was trying to think about what happens to masculinity after patriarchy. And I was doing, I was trying to sort of work out, is there anything that we can rescue about masculinity? So I'm a gay man, I'm attracted to masculinity, but, but sort of by definition as a gay man. And, but I'm also committed to undoing patriarchy. So I began to think, well, what, ha what will happen to all this stuff that we call masculinity um, once uh, we've come together and we've completely destroyed patriarchy? And, I, and that sort of got me thinking about, historically, what do men do to overcome things? And if they've got this kind of monolithic thing that they have to overcome what do they do and I was thinking well they go on quest don't they so it's like knights go on a quest to kill a dragon or in Greek mythology they're constantly going on quests to go and kind of find out about a particular hidden thing or a thing that they don't understand so I started to think about this idea of the quest story and that made me start to look at contemporary questing so I was really interested. I just came, I came across it actually, this film of men rowing across the Atlantic. And it was like they were going on this quest to, you know, get from wherever they started in Spain and the Azores to get all the way across the Atlantic. And I, as I was watching it, I realised that as they got more and more kind of ground down by it, they became more and more emotional and they were physical with each other and they cried with each other and they looked after each other. And I started to think, oh, that, that's what happens. So men go on these great big physical quests that sort of prove their masculinity. And in proving their masculinity, they're sort of liberated from it to do these things that normally, as men, our masculinity prevents us from doing. So then I thought, oh, well, I'll go on a quest to make a perfect shirt because it's sort of throwing that whole thing upside down because 
making sewing is not seen as a quest. So it was slightly humorous, but I really am trying to make a perfect shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's interesting as well, isn't it, about the perfect shirt? Because I feel like that in itself, there are some issues there in terms of masculinity, aren't there, about perhaps men might feel the pressure to be perfect in all ways. And yeah, was there anything which made you kind of have that? I'm glad that's exactly what it is, Stephen. (laughs) So it's this... I think as boys, we get set up. Masculinity sets up an ideal. I mean, I don't think there's one masculinity anyway. There's Mm. multiple masculinities. But we get set these ideals of masculinity. um, And I think that's really problematic anyway. Well, I mean, I know, Sandy, you've talked about role models. And I think that's quite problematic because Mm. I think it sets up another set of archetypes Mm. to sort of have to somehow strive for. Um, so I wanted to really unpick, unpick that idea that anything can be perfect, but also men constantly are, it's masculinity that's driving us to have these false expectations of being perfect, um, perfect at work, perfect at home, perfect in all these different ways. And none of us match up to it and none of us achieve it. And that's the whole, you know, tyranny of patriarchy as it affects men and obviously primarily women so yeah it was deliberately in there to say however much you quest you're never going to achieve perfection it is impossible and also my idea of the perfect shirt is not going to be your idea of the perfect shirt so to sort of put that across into masculinity this sense of trying to be you know all this new language about being a better man well what is a worse man then so I find all of that really difficult as language um, and I couldn't find any language that I found particularly helpful or useful around the kind of masculinity that I think doesn't necessarily what we now call a particular kind of masculinity doesn't have to be completely thrown away but there wasn't any language around it Um, So there were lots of things about perfection and imperfection in terms of making visual art rather than making text or something else, which we usually use to both construct and deconstruct masculinity. Mm. Well, I mean, having just had a look at the exhibition, the shirts are are beautiful. And um, yeah, what was it that led you to want to focus on shirts as your kind of medium um, in the first place? Well, initially, initially it was flippant because I was doing something else and I wasn't being as creative as I wanted to be. And uh, another artist said to me, well, what is it, you know, the typical artist question, what is it that you really want to make? Uh, Which we all ask each other when we're stuck. Um, And I said, well, I just want to, I really flippantly said, I just really want to make a perfect shirt. And so they said, well, then you just have to make it. And that, that was a good starting point, thinking, well, sometimes you have to do this, these things in order to kind of get yourself unstuck. So it started off that I really did want to just learn how to make things better. I'd always been interested in costume and clothing anyway, but I wanted to learn how to make it better. But what, as soon as I said that I was going to do this and that I was going to what were called dressmaking classes and magically became garment making classes when I joined them. Um, People were really starting to talk to me about loads of things to do with men because I said I was making shirts. 
And so they didn't focus on the shirts at all. They focused on the men that wore them. So I started to think, oh, these could stand in really well for bodies and for all of these different embodied masculinities in a way that if I tried to write it, it would have just been too much and not the words are not adequate. Do you want to say a bit more about your method? Because, as I understand it, you, you work publicly very often. You know, how, how does that uh, play out? And what kind of reactions do you get? What kind of settings are you working in, actually, as well? Um, well, settings, I do it in all sorts of places. So sometimes invited. So I might be at a festival, or people might be having an open day at a gallery or a museum or um, some kind of public event where they want kind of artists to be there and quite often people will say well you would do a workshop and I'll negotiate to say well no but I'll do a public making and people can come and talk to me and see what I'm doing um, and so they're the locations but I also just sometimes get my sewing out and do it in public which is slightly more scary because it's not a nicely controlled environment um, the reason for doing it, so that's the where, the reason for doing it is to gather more, uh, is to talk to pe more people about masculinity. Because, as I say, it, it is a bit weird and a bit magical, but people just tell me things that sometimes they say, oh, I've never told anybody that before. I mean, like, well, maybe not, I've never had anybody say I've never told anybody. But I had one man I was making in Darlington Market, which is just down the road from here and he told me all about having cancer and he said that he'd only told his daughter and I was like this is incredible this sort of what happens that what people will tell to a stranger and I think it's partly because and the, the other reason for doing it is I call it a quiet disruption mm -hmm. so it's a sort of disruption of the public realm and seeing a man so in public is not a usual mm. occupation so I think people are slightly reassured by me doing this what is regarded as feminine labor or mm. feminized labor so I'm not sort of threatening and I it looks like I'm doing something else it looks like I'm not there I've not got a big thing up saying mm. come and be interviewed about your thoughts about masculinity because <laughs> nobody would come but because I'm just seeing and sewing people are a bit intrigued by it and the fact that I'm in public means that I must in some way be inviting some exchange um, and I'm not putting myself behind barriers in any way and so people come and talk to me and as soon as I say they say oh what are you doing and I say oh I'm just making a shirt oh why are you doing that oh well I make these shirts and off they go it makes me think that quite often men's interactions with each other are around an activity. Mm. You know, it's, it's fairly rare for men to sit down and just mm. talk about their emotional lives, but actually mm. the, the activity makes it possible. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That, you know, that's like group work, isn't it? And we were talking before about the fact that we call, up in the northeast, we call what people think of as men's sheds, crees up here, men's crees. So you've got these men coming together, primarily to do woodwork together. But they're there because all of them know that there's something else other than just them wanting to do woodwork together. And it's not always um, right at the front of all the conversations, but it, it's the, the woodworking 
facilitates them talking about whatever it is they need to talk about and why they're actually at the Cree. Or at mm. And there may presumably be a process as well. You know, you go to the shed over a period of time and as you become more familiar, more integrated, you feel more confident and able to open up in inverted yeah. commas. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole thing, isn't there, about, which is much talked about, that men talk side to side and women talk face to face. And that having a distraction means that you're not there's a, all that psychology about men not looking each other in the eye and the threats and either threats and intimacy that we talk a lot about in theatre and how do you get men to not appear like they're in conflict and all of that sort of stuff so I think as you say having an activity takes away that frightening thing that for a lot of men has become either an indication of threat being looked in the eye or an indication of intimacy being looked in the eye and both those things are kind of scary for for us mm. as men mm. and i've also heard it said that you know sometimes walking with a young man beside them yeah. can work in the way that you're mm. you're saying actually yeah. rather than sitting across the table as we're in fact doing now <laughs> yeah. even though there's no sense of conflict about it but uh, <laughs> but i think that can work too can't it and in the car yeah. You know, when you're sitting, it's that whole side-by-side -side thing. Yeah. It's a very different thing. I mean, the psychologists would have a field day with what oh, I'm sure. saying, but that's just an observation. Well, presumably also the sitting down as opposed to standing up is, yeah. is significant too. So you're, you, know, yeah. you can be below the person who's coming to, Absolutely. to talk it makes, to you. So it, it makes a difference. It does. It makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, do you have some reflections of what, as to what you might have learned about masculinity and how it presents today from your activities, or is that too difficult to... Oh, man. I mean, the biggest thing is this... It, lots of people are saying it. It's not my idea, but this breaking down of this monolithic masculinity into a series of masculinities. And I think... For the public, they see masculinity, a single thing, located in a biologically male body, usually an adult male body. And I just think that's nonsense. I think masculinity is a complete construct and that we can all take some of the bits of it, whatever our biology or whatever our age or however we present ourselves, and we can pick the bits that we currently construct as being masculinity that are useful and likable for us and keep them, whether we are biologically male, biologically female, young, old, wherever we might be. But I think that for me, there's something about, I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep going with my, I've never been a biological determinist, so I know it's very old fashioned now, but you know, I've always, not believed in biological determinism like I don't believe in original sin so I think those two things go together for me and if we can throw out something like original sin which lots of us have as non-religious people or non-believing people then I think we can throw out this idea of biological determinism um, but I don't want to completely get rid of what we've constructed as masculinities because some of them I know, as, as, as I said before, as a gay man, I find them quite attractive. But I find them attractive when I see them in biological women as well. Mm. And I don't think it's just about sex and sexuality. I think it's about lots of things. 
One of the things which struck me about it as well was the, um, I suppose, the kind of fragility and the, the vulnerability which was being expressed through these shirts, I guess, right? And how the shirts might often be a kind of a protection, a kind of armour, which well, I suppose clothes do serve that purpose for all of us to some extent, don't they? But perhaps especially for men. I mean, one of the pieces is called Outer Armour, isn't it? But I think that's... But also I was thinking about what you were talking about, about being in public with a sewing machine, and perhaps that is something we... I, I see a sewing machine and it feels quite comforting to me and like and friendly and, and you associate perhaps with the home and so maybe that's also why people feel comfortable to approach you but um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think they are. I think in a Western context, that's exactly what they are. Um, but I'm also interested in that idea. There's something about, in outside our kind of Western concept, sewing machines are mechanisms of industrial oppression, you know, that people across the world are actually working on sewing machines and not even making anything like a living wage in their own country, never mind near a living wage in this country. Um, so I think it's interesting about location, like that sewing machine, like what would it be like if I, as a, a white Western, you know, older man, if I was to start sewing in somewhere like Bangladesh, what, what would that mean? So I think it is quite... You know, I recognise that my show is very much in that context mm, of mm. men's white art, if you like. It's well, and I was good here in the UK in the past, right? We've had significant textile industries, which, from the impression I get, were quite brutal to work in. Yeah, and yeah for sure. Yeah, but um, yeah, perhaps it would be good for our listeners to hear a little bit about some of the specific pieces. So yeah, perhaps we could each just mention a piece or two, which you know, particularly struck us or impacted us in some way. Um, yeah, is there one or, one or two shirts that you'd like to discuss? Well, you, I, you did send me that question, and I always write down, it's, that's like saying, pick your favourite child, <laughs> which, you know, like, that's not allowed. I can't do that. Um, I mean, what I would say is that some of them are, they do fall into different types. So um, some of them are... They've been made with groups, so they, they're very narrative. So, for example, there's a shirt that I made with a group of homeless men, and um, they were very keen about saying that they wanted it to have a, a yoke. The yoke is the part of the shirt that supports where all the sleeves and the collar and everything else come off. So the yoke is the bit of the shirt which is most important to its structure. And we, when I was talking to them about how shirts are made, they wanted that to look like bricks. So that one, for example, has a corduroy brown back and it's embroidered with rectangles on the back so that it looks like brickwork. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily have been um, quite as kind of didactic or figurative as that, but those kind of shirts represent different people's ideas um, or groups ideas and so that one that one also a man in that group told me that all he wanted was his own knife fork and spoon and I just I, it broke my heart it absolutely broke my heart so I wanted to put that knife fork and spoon in so we worked together and he made a knife and a fork and a spoon out of ceramic and then we put those in the pocket of the shirt so some shirts are really really full of quite clear storytelling um, but some of them are really quite 
um, subtle, I think, yeah. and people can read into them anything they want. Um, and they're probably more shirt-like than object-like. Mm. Um, I would say that's the big division between them, that ones that really are shirt-like and mm. ones that are more narrative. Mm. Um, but they're all doing they're all doing their own little job in there of being <laughs> part of a crowd of masculinity and they're all chatting away with each other without us even knowing that they're doing it. I mean, it's really just how the exhibition's laid out, all of the shirts hanging up in various places. It's really beautiful and powerful. So perhaps we'll put in the show notes for the episode links for our uh, listeners to be able to go to your social media so they can actually see see them for themselves. Um, yeah, what about you, Sandy? Were there any shirts you particularly... Well, there was one which I thought was very interesting, which is called Women Are, Men Are. Mm. And I'm not sure I can describe it as well as you probably can, to be honest, Richard, but uh, um, it's kind of half pink, half blue... And then there are certain little words on little sequins, maybe, stitched onto each side. And, you know, the words are quite interesting. I mean, it reminds me of that exercise that people very often do in school where they you know, get kids to say, women are like this and men are like that. And, you know, but the words are interesting because they're not really necessarily the stereotypical words which you would associate with women and men. Um, that's about as far as I can get um, without... Yeah, no, you that's... Want to a, that's say a bit more about it. That's absolutely right. It's deliberately pink and blue, which are the immediate divisions that we place. And then we place all of what we ascribe to be feminine inside the pink and all that we ascribe to be masculine inside the blue. And we do it, you know, from birth. Again, I find it fascinating that people are desperate to know what the gender of a baby is. Is it a boy or a girl? And it's the first thing that... It's the only thing you have to have on your birth certificate is your gender. And it's like, oh, my God. God, why are we so obsessed with this? Does it really matter in that moment after a child is born? Well, clearly it does because patriarchy is so strong. And so I wanted the shirt to start with that sort of really simple idea of pinks for girls and blues for boys, which we all think we've abandoned. But then we absolutely, as you say, there's often that exercise done where people get into biologically determined ideas of boys are like this and girls are like that, rather than seeing it as a construct. And then I think what happens is that we then start to put behaviours onto um, each other. And even if it's exact, the the commonest one for me is things like, um, so assertive and pushy you know if you do exactly the same behavior and you present yourself as being a woman and you say things and you say them in a particular way you'll be told that you're being pushy and you could then present exactly the same words in exactly the same way and if you saw it was seen as being a man you would be seen as being assertive um and you know, like, I, I think those are the words that interest me much more because those are the things that I think we can start to recapture back into being available to us all. So I deliberately picked words that, out of a conversation, I mean, this came out of another conversation about, you know, some people see me as rude because when I say something, I'm told I'm rude. This was a woman talking to me saying, if I say certain things at work about um, somebody's uh, performance, I'm told that I'm rude. Whereas if a man so, says that, they're honest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's that whole thing of 
trying to deconstruct that and say, well, if, if it's all right to say it, and, on, and honest is an okay word, let's just give honest to everybody um, and stop saying that that behaviour, when it's put into a particular body, is not acceptable. It made me also think of um, you know, how we traditionally see pink as a women's colour and blue as men's colour and as I understand it many years ago actually it was the reverse of that it was so absolutely. you know <laughs> what goes around comes around in a way yeah. um, it's interesting from that point of view mm. what about you Stephen yeah well there were there's actually there's now several I want to ah, ask around well me too, me too actually but do carry on okay well yeah two two which struck me actually partly because of the conversation we had with you about it were two called um, Jewish not Jewish and Jewish and gay um, with a question mark at the end, and these were, one of, I mean, they were quite simple shirts, weren't they? One of which was white with a kind of a rip in the breast kind of pocket area, and the other one was black, but with some little kind of important little decorations in the buttons and things. Yeah, do you want to tell us a bit more about those? Um, yeah, those come out of two, well, my, my heritage is Jewish, although I'm not in any way practicing of my religion. Um, but it, I've always found it interesting that, you know, how, how Jewish you become when the chips are down. So when people are being really anti-Semitic, I, I can start to feel very Jewish. Um, and if people want to be critical, then they'll use the fact that, you know, it, interestingly, I, I'm, I'm originally from North London and I have got a very identifiably Jewish name, but not in the Northeast. <laughs> so... Um, there are things about being Jewish and not Jewish that I think exist all the time. So I think lots of Jewish people know who other Jewish people are. And we do a lot of looking at names and kind of having a, a knowledge that is kind of not necessarily available to people who aren't Jewish, unless you've got a really obviously Jewish name like Cohen. Um, but also I'm not Jewish as far as Jews are concerned. So I'm not Jewish. But then I'm really interested in, you know, like I was explaining to Sandy, my real family name should be Blutstein. That's my, my dad's real name was Arthur Israel Blutstein. You could not get a more Jewish name than that. And he couldn't get any work. So he started calling himself Arthur Bliss and was able to get work. I mean, this was in the 1930s. So I was kind of interested in that idea that you could put on and take off this really powerful identity, either powerful because people wanted to do it down or powerful because it might be useful in some sort of circumstances. And that sort of got me into thinking about the whole notion of what these shirts were doing anyway in terms of these multiple identities of masculinity. And some time ago, I really wanted to try and make a shirt with some of the men who were in the Hasidic community in Gateshead. Because when I came from London, one to Newcastle Poly at the time, one of the things that people said was, oh, there's a big Hasidic community in Gateshead. So people, you like, there are only a few in the whole country, London, Gateshead, Manchester. Um, but because I'm gay, I couldn't get into that community. So that the men in that community didn't really want to work with me because I wouldn't be, I won't compromise about talking about my sexuality. So that got me into this whole thing of Jewish, not Jewish, about me. 
Um, and there's quite a lot of me in the show. Um, and the one that is Jewish, not Jewish, is a rent shirt, so it's deliberately torn. And uh, amongst Orthodox communities, you tear your clothes when somebody dies. So again, it would be immediately recognisable to somebody from that community why that's happened and what that is. But if you're outside it, it's not as immediately available to you. Um, and I think it's, I do think it's quite a complicated thing to be, a, sort of to be a socialist and an international socialist and be gay and be Jewish and hold all of those multiple identities together. You know, we're talking about it today when there is war again in, in Israel and Gaza. And I think those things are complicated to hold together. And I think the imagery that goes with that of men taking women captive and all of those things kind of say something about how masculinity is constructed in that part of the world and the power of masculinity in that world in terms of how it then begins to affect geopolitics. So I had to put something in there. And of course, in terms of a religion, Judaism is weirdly mixed up in that it's a matrilineal in terms of your heritage, but the honor all lies with having a firstborn son. So it's sort of complex around priority and importance around gender. You said to us earlier one interesting thing as well, which was that um, you, you never saw a Jewish person, wear, a Jewish man wearing a black shirt. Mm. And, you know, the Jewish and gay shirt is black. Mm. And of course, there's the political association of black shirts and what happened to Jews in the, in the 30s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was very deliberate because uh, my dad was brought up in the East End of London in the 1930s. He was born in 1940. I'm dead now, obviously, but he was born in 1914. So he lived right through that period of really massive anti-Semitism in this country. And it's not, you know, people label it all onto the black shirts. And I was saying, yeah, I said to you, Sandy, I don't think I'd ever seen a man, a Jewish man in a black shirt, like a religiously Jewish man in a black shirt. And I, I, I don't think I'd really thought about it that much but it was a deliberate choice to put all of the Jewish symbolism onto a black shirt because of my dad's experience yeah. of Mosley and the black shirts in the East End of London and the fact that the British all of those British institutions particularly in London were very anti-semitic I mean people don't like talking about the fact that Winston Churchill was incredibly anti-semitic um, and so, or anti-Jewish, I should say. Um, so I wanted that in there somewhere, and I wanted it to be deliberately a black shirt, just to create some sort of tension about Jewish and gay, and the contradiction that I find difficult to hold together around that. Yeah, and there's simultaneously a, a few kind of buttons, isn't there, and kind of rainbow colours and the pink triangle, which the Nazis made gay people wear on the, on the uh, sleeve. And yeah, 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 really amazing. Yeah, um, but they were freed together, which again we had a very interesting conversation about. And they're called "I Tell You the Questions to Ask Me," "I'll Tell You Everything You Need to Know," and "I'll Tell You What I Want You to Know." Um, yeah, could you just explain a bit about what the shirts are and what your thinking was behind those? They're they're three beige shirts and they're deliberately in a very neutral colour, which I very much associate with um, kind of 
unobtrusive office wear. So they're a sort of seemingly very inoffensive colour. Um, and they're hung in such a way that they're all at the same height on a single frame and they become like a wall. Um, and I have to give credit to Debbie Connell for that, who's the curator here at Bishop Auckland Town Hall, who's done a brilliant job of hanging that particular... She's hung the whole show beautifully, but she's hung that particular part of the show extremely well. And those all come out of conversations with men who work in big institutions um, where the men who hold power apparently are very open to um, questions being asked. You know, we want to have an open and conversational environment and questions are good for growth. And, um, you know, unless we have a kind of questioning um, group of staff, we're never going to make any progress. And um, all of that kind of stuff that I have heard. I'm lucky not to be in that corporate world. But this particular person was still in the corporate world. Um, and I think it happens in universities as well, I have to say. I don't think it's just about commercialism. I think all of the big institutions, when you get these very masculine characters, whether they be men or women, at the top of organisations, they will constantly say things like, we're listening, we're, you know, we want you to ask us questions. If you actually ask those people the real questions that need answering, like, um, you know if you were in a big corporate organisation, why do we have to make £400 million of profit? Why don't we make half that profit and use the other half of that profit to improve the conditions of the workers in our factories? They would say something like, oh, well, not those questions. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make this set of shirts that kind of said, that said all of that, but said it quite quickly about this notion of kind of appearing to be really open and really kind of, oh yeah, yeah, we're an open organisation, you can ask us anything we want. But actually what happens a lot of the time is nobody's out, uh, allowed to ask their questions. They're only allowed to ask the questions that management deem appropriate. I mean, I've been in meetings where people will say, that's not a question for this meeting. And you think, well, it's just, why, if it's not, what, what you mean, what, you, what, what you're saying is, I'm not going to answer that, or I'm not going to tell you. But what you say is, that's not a question for this meeting. And I'm a bit like, well, no, why don't you just be honest and say, I'm not prepared to answer that. But they never do, because what they want to create, that's why the one in the middle has got red buttons. Because I think some of the, and they usually are men, they become a bit like clowns, because they speak nonsense, like, that's not a question for this meeting, when what they mean is, I'm not answering that question. And once you start to see them as clowns, I think they become less powerful anyway. So I don't, and lots of people do that thing of saying, oh, try and see people naked. And some of those, particularly men, I don't want to imagine them naked. So I do imagine them as clowns, and that's quite useful sometimes. Isn't there something also about the white shirt as well? Mm. You know, and I mean, there's a history and tradition around that, that that tended to be worn, I think, by, by those who are in the sort of higher classes, shall we say. Right? Definitely. I, I, I did think about doing it on white shirts, but I, I wanted to sort of create this idea of corporateness. So I didn't want it to be, I wanted to have a colour in there, but I almost wanted to have a colour that didn't really appear, which is why I went for that sort of slightly nothingy beige colour, um, because it was trying to be an inoffensive. 
Whereas I think a crisp white shirt says too much too quickly. Mm. Um, yeah, I was thinking whilst you were talking just there about you know, the Thatcherite period, I associate that with a sort of pale blue shirt. Is that right? Yeah, I agree. I think they all started wearing pale blue shirts. And I think people like um, Tony Blair wore a lot of pale blue shirts. I think partly they started doing that because they got so they got more aware of television and they were all wearing white shirts and white shirts burn on TV. They look dreadful. If you wear a white shirt on TV and studio lights, it'll really burn through the lights. So wearing a pale blue shirt works much better in media terms. Oh, now, you're, now you're talking, I'm thinking about David Steele, who used to wear those uh, striped shirts, but they had a white collar. I used to really hate that. I thought, there's no way I can vote for this guy. <laughs> Terrible, isn't it? But how interesting. His sartorial decisions make decisions. They do. They, they sway us. But, yeah, I think, I think a white shirt is a very powerful thing. Um, I happen to really like white shirts. Um, so I almost didn't want to do that because I think it would have spoilt them for me. Mm. Whereas if I put them in beige, I would never wear that colour, for example. Mm. So because it's my show, I can do what I want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you said earlier about, you know, what it's like to be a man who is undertaking sewing. And, you know, textile art is not, not really a sort of medium that's uh, necessarily associated with men very often. So, so what was it that, you know made you get into this in the first place? I don't know. I mean, I really loved sewing since I was really little, to be honest. I've liked sewing. I think what I liked when I was little as a child was that idea that you could go from two dimensions to three dimensions really quickly and easily. So it was a medium that was quite um, exciting for me to make sort of objects and sculptural objects. So I really liked that. I did used to work in theatre and I loved costume. I mean, you know, dressing up, that's basically, acting is just dressing up and learning somebody else's words. So there's an element of that sort of dressiness that I quite liked. Um, but really, I, I mean, I, I find it such a useful way of talking about big things because Clothing in particular is something that's really available to us all. We all understand what it is. And we can, we can read it at lots of different levels. So what you were saying about David Steele's collar and the stripiness, you know, we, we immediately, all of us do that all the time, that sort of thing of making judgments about people based on what they're wearing. And so the idea for me is that it's not, it's not the textile art in terms of the texture and form of textile. It's what I can do with cloth in making it into clothes in particular ways that begin to say a lot about the body and bodies in the world. Um, so that's why I do it. So I'm not really coming at it from an art place. I'm coming at it much more from a, well, from a sort of politics, sociology place, really, to try and get things that can stand in for the body. Right, because I wondered, I, I you know, remember the sort of period, main period of HIV-AIDS, and there was um, the, the quilting that was done then, yeah. you know, the m memorial quilt, I think it yeah. was called, and I wondered if that had been part of you getting into it as well. No, although I do know people who had panels made for them, mm -hmm. um, and Patsy Adams, who is still very involved with um, sustaining the history of the quilt, is from this region, and, and I knew Patsy in years gone by. Um, 
and I do make I, one of the first things I ever made was a quilt which was all made of ties so I did sort of start in right. quilts um, which I've still got and I would really like to show that somewhere again but um, yeah I've yeah. Yeah. Attires in themselves are kind of, you know, masculinity mm. symbol, aren't they? And you've got a shirt that, <laughs> you know, actually says something like, you know, I don't have why to have a tie. A tie yeah, anymore. why a tie? It's a yeah. short sleeve shirt made of quite a kind of uh, what we would think of as kind of leisure wear fabric. So it's blue, blue and burgundy check. And then it's got a red, the facing, which is where you would put the buttons in on a shirt. It's the bit that you put the buttonholes and the buttons in, that's the facing, um, is, is in a different fabric, in a red rose fabric. And it's asking the question of why a tie? Um, because ties have gone out of fashion. Um, and like the only people who now wear ties consistently are politicians and news readers. Um, but they used to be really important and I, I was told this was another thing the tie one came about because somebody explained to me that the tie had come from the rough and the rough was about okay. separating the brain and the body so men wore roughs in order to reinforce their um, importance uh, of their brains ruling their body um, and then the tie is a remnant from that period but ties have gone you know it still has the, the power to create controversy doesn't it i mean if a newsreader wears you know doesn't wear a black tie and someone significant has died yeah. then there's a terrible kerfuffle about it isn't there yeah i mean you know and that's you know that's the time we would wear a tie again isn't it as men i guess so yeah we might be expected to wear a tie to a funeral and yeah. if you didn't wear a tie to a funeral yeah, particularly men of my age it would be a bit yeah. I would feel quite odd not wear a tie to a funeral. The only other time I can think of that I've worn a tie was for job interviews, and that's interesting, isn't oh, yeah. it? It's like, you know, I'm asserting my masculinity in a context where I'm like trying to prove to you that you should employ me, and there can be kind of gender inequalities there, can't there? So that's interesting, yeah. And I think when women wear ties, they take on some masculinity. Mm. Um, so in popular culture, women in ties are interpolating some masculinity so it's a weirdly powerful thing for a very small piece of fabric um, and that's why I wanted it in there yeah the tie is interesting because you know if I've been to job interview I haven't been to a job interview for a long time but <laughs> when I used to go yeah. I felt more uncomfortable wearing a tie oh, God, absolutely. and yet I was yeah. trying to fit in yeah. you know it's a sort of double yeah. double bluff going yeah. on you know yeah, and yeah. It, it's uh, yeah, yeah it was quite tricky yeah 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 <laughs> And I suppose there are ways you can subtly try and challenge some of the masculine norms by having a tie which is pink or flowery or... But still, it is a tie, isn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering whether you think art can, can be a medium through which we can reflect upon or even instigate some changes in gender norms and social inequalities. Does it have that, that sort of power or...? I mean, that's like the big question about art, isn't it? Yeah. What's the point of art? Um, I don't think that's what art's for. Um, I think if people see work and it inspires them to think differently or think about something more deeply, then that's worked as a piece of art. But I think if you set out with the intention of being that sort of didactic, you'll probably fail and it won't be very good art. Um, or it'll become like that sort of, you know, very... Um, propaganda art 
Right. But your work does fit into a, a bit of a tradition of you know, trying to understand masculinity at the very least. I mean, if you think about someone like Grayson Perry, yeah. who, by the way, has written a very good book about masculinity called The Scent of Man, and, and you know, been on public stages talking about masculinity a lot, made TV programmes. I mean, it's very much in the same territory, yeah. I think, what you're doing, isn't it? Well, I'm very glad to be in the same territory <laughs> somebody as good as Grayson Perry. But, yeah, I suppose... Lots of us, lots of people who are now in that kind of area of contemporary art are about trying to make commentary about what's wrong with the world. Um, and yeah, you know, Grayson Perry's book is great. It's got a lot of good stuff in it. Um, and I think he's quite interesting about trying to be more democratic about the way that galleries are. And, you know, he does break a convention about what, a man artist at the top of their game should be doing and how they should be behaving. Um, if you compare him to other people of his, his contemporaries, if you like, other men of who, contemporaries, they wouldn't dream of doing some of the things that he does. So, yeah, I think, of course, we set out to say something, but um, I think we've, I think all artists are sort of in that area of saying, well, we're just trying to get, we're just making questions. We're not really in the business of necessarily having all the answers, really. Yeah, so place is another thing which seems very important to your work, uh, Richard. Um, so you do have other pieces here in Bishop Auckland Town Hall called Workers' Fred and Concert Shirt Tales, which both celebrate the contribution of working class women and men to the history of, of Durham. Um, yeah, so how have the localities of Durham, uh, North East England, influenced your work? Um, they have. I mean, it's interesting that the, those particular pieces are like the other side of my work. Um, so I started off, I've, I started that strand of work by being interested in the fact that it's very hard to find queer people in history, um, mostly because we couldn't make ourselves visible in the past in the way that we might be able to now. But in the process of doing that, I found that the even bigger issue was that working class people are not there. So, and I, I did find that when I make work that is about queer people in history, it's quite a narrow audience and people don't necessarily engage with it. Whereas when I make work which is about the fact that working class people are left out of history, it opens up conversations about who else is left out of history. So although those pieces are all directly about putting the lives, the people who've contributed to our history and heritage in the Northeast, putting them back into the museums and the galleries and all the places that they should never have been left out of in the first place, what I think it does is help people to think, oh, so decolonialising um, our museums. Oh, that's what it's about, which a lot of white people find really objectionable and they don't want to do. But when you start talking about putting things back in and putting things in in a different way, I think it opens up a whole conversation about what's missing and why it's missing. And then if we start asking those questions about how our history is made, it gives us an opportunity to say, guess what, that's why the present looks the way that it does. Um, but I talk about them as historic objects that never existed but should have been collected at the time they were, ma they were made. So I'm trying to make these 
they are nearly all clothing, but they they are the clothing that belong to real people in history. And for example, if you go to a lot of museums, you might see something like uh, a pair of gloves owned by Queen Victoria, and then next to it, it'll say um, it might say something like cap. <laughs> and you think, well. You know, that belonged to somebody and they obviously had a name and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and you see it particularly, and I thought if I do it with clothing, it will really show up that stuff about objects. So if you look at particularly painting, it's a paintings of posh people by usually increasingly wealthy white men. You know, why are there not photographs or paintings or pictures from people at the time because people have always captured themselves in imagery you know the people have painted and drawn and done all those things so it, I'm just sort of asking those questions really and that I try and make the objects very beautiful so that they can stand alongside these incredibly expensive and full of labor objects that exist like Queen Victoria's gloves alongside cap so you know and then it'll say you know a worsted man's cap as typically worn by men in the northeast and you kind of think yeah but also unless that's brand new and never been worn it's probably worn more than queen victoria's gloves which she might not have even worn you know she was probably given a pair of gloves every single place she went to and never wore them whereas that cap was worn by somebody who has a whole history and a whole story so i'm putting those working class people back in but with hopefully very beautiful objects that um that either are directly from photographs of those people or that are based on research about the objects that do exist from the day so looking at paintings or drawings or not necessarily, you know, look, sometimes you can see a lot in the background of paintings about working class people because they're, they're sort of sketched in. But, yeah, so that's what those objects are about. They're, they're missing, missing history objects. Mm. Did you want to say anything as well about Bishop Auckland, where, where the exhibition is based, which has a very interesting history and story, you know, things like religion over hundreds of years and more recently deindustrialization poverty, Brexit, like the decline of the Labour Party's so-called kind of red wall, seats in Northern England, and then we've also seen some investment in art and culture here recently from a wealthy benefactor. Um, so it's yeah, got a very interesting story, hasn't it, Bishop Auckland? So yeah, do you want to say anything about why, why you know, you felt it a, a good place for your exhibition, I suppose? Well, I think you said everything that you said <laughs> Sorry, about Bishop yeah. Auckland. <laughs> and I'm going to make pick. no more comments on that. Um, I mean, I'll be really honest, I'm, I, I, the show is here because uh, Debbie Connell, who's the curator here, had seen other work of mine and wanted, wanted a show that she felt the general public could really engage with. And that's what, that's what my work is about. And this, whilst I think this show could go into a traditional white cube gallery, mm. I think it would have a very different impact than being in a gallery that's really available to the public. So um, it's a fantastic gallery space, but it's right next door to a cafe, which is, you know, the Town Hall Cafe is really well used. And Debbie has designed or been very, when she's been 
when she's been given opportunities to think about how the space should be organised, she's been really keen to not have barriers between different parts of the building. So she really encourages people who might not think contemporary art is for them to feel that they can come into the space. So there's no doors on the gallery. There's a big wall on one side, but there's no door. So you can just sort of peek in and see if you like it. And she was very keen for the show to come because she felt that it could operate on a number of levels. It can be, it is hopefully just a lovely thing to look at. So there's lots of colour, there's movement in it. Um, you can do the thing of just picking which is my favourite shirt. You can imagine yourself into them. That's a really completely legitimate purpose for why I made the show, which is to entertain people and encourage conversation. But then you can start to read it on the other levels as well of what what is there, particularly if you take the time to read the text pieces that are in it or to sort of really look at the shirts as artistic objects and see the interplay between them. So we were in agreement really that it would work well as a show that could appeal to people who are interested in contemporary art and also people who maybe didn't think they were interested in contemporary art but who just like to come and see something that is nice to look at for 15 or 20 minutes and those are both completely legitimate reasons to come and see the show. It's worth mentioning as well it's right next to a famous piece of art isn't it by the artist uh, Norman Cornish um, about and he was a miner and it's about Durham Miners Gala so this kind of so County Durham being a place with a like big mining history big trade union history and this huge event Durham Miners Gala I think it's the largest trade union gathering in Europe isn't it and obviously textiles a big thing there as well with the mi the beautiful miners uh, banners um, yeah so it's I think it's and obviously there's lots of issues there too with masculinity and mining so yeah it's a really great kind of juxtaposition in a way isn't it yeah, yeah. <laughs> And of course the coat that's in Workers' yes, Thread yes. is made of a fabric which is designed out of miners' banners just to try and exactly as you say that masculine trade union history whereas Newton Aycliffe was built primarily on the labour of women in light industry and they were very uh, instrumental in setting up the trade unions that were part of that light industry but their history is often overlooked so that coat is a copy of a coat from the 1950s where there's a photograph of these women with their Labour Party women's section banner in Newton Aycliffe. But in all of the history of Newton Aycliffe that I've read, I never hear about these women pioneers. It's like you hear about the Aycliffe Angels, thousands of women making munitions in Newton Aycliffe, and then beverage, 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 and then and nothing about these women that were among the 346 pioneers there were over half of them were single women and they did things like give up the fact that they would they gave up having houses built in order to have a nursery and a community center built and i think those are the things in history that need celebrating so i made their coat mm. Mm. oh i thought also there was something about celebrating craft workers really in your in your work mm. You know, yeah, I think there like is. That. There is. I mean, I, yeah. I think craft is really... Like most fine artists don't see craft as being particularly important. Craft is downgraded next to art. And what I do is make art through craft. Um, I think now we've broken those barriers much more. But, yeah, even now, you know, painting's at the top of the game. If you're a, if you're a great painter, then you're a great artist. 
And, and where do you go from here? I mean, you know, um, has the quest for the perfect shirt, you know, left you feeling hopeful about um, social change and where we're going? Or um, where are you going? Oh, yourself? blimey. Has it left me feeling hopeful about social change? Unfortunately, I think we're going backwards at the moment. I'm really concerned about that. And I think that a lot of the stuff that I started to see in the 1980s um, we've lost I mean you mentioned HIV and AIDS before and something I often talk to young queer people about is that I was part of the generation where because we had to but where gay men did things like form lunch clubs and social clubs to look after each other because social care was was lacking um, and I think that's really disappeared and I think that's really sad that we didn't hang on to the collective elements that were happening then about care for each other. Mm. Um, so I think we talk a lot about it but I, my sense of there being action around this stuff I think is not, not there sadly. Um, of course I've got hope, I believe in humanity and I believe that people want to make the world a better place um, and whether or not my work contributes that I don't know. But the next thing I'm looking at is older gay men and the invisibility of us. So that's what I'm starting to think about now, having made this very visible kind of body, body, body thing. I'm now trying to think about, oh, so where is the older gay man's body in the world and what does that look like? Because it's such a bodied culture. Gay man's culture is so much the cult of the body. And once you have an aging body, then you're not part of the cult of a, being an attractive gay man anymore. So yeah. I started to think, oh, I'll do something with that. You made me think about when I was doing some work some time ago now, actually, um, on the needs of, of older men in general and talking to some gay men who said, you know, going into an old people's home, or equivalent, was like going back in the closet, actually. Yeah. You know, because their needs and identity wasn't, weren't recognised. No. So I think you're very right that there's a lot to do there as well, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, I've been in care homes where the conversation always starts with, you know, so when did you get married? And let's look mm. at the wedding photos. And it's like, mm. OK, well, I know in this room there are going to be some gay men. Mm. And it's amazing when you're out, how, what, how suddenly, oh look, there are lesbians and gay men here, we never knew they were there. Um, I'm sort of doing it for myself, because I'm now 60 plus, so, um, and I'm just interested in, am I disappearing? Mm. Well, it sounds like I might have to invite you back for another episode in due course, Richard. <laughs> But yeah, I think, yeah, I think we're going to have to stop there. Yeah, Our time yeah, has uh, yeah, sadly run, out. <laughs> run its course. Yeah, but thank you so much for yeah. coming on the podcast and yeah. talking about your you know, exhibition. It was so fantastic. Yeah. I really enjoyed yeah. seeing the shirts, talking yeah. to you about the shirts, learning from your experience. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you for making these podcasts. They are great. I'm going to say, if you haven't listened to the other ones, <laughs> listeners... <laughs> Go back and listen to them because they're really interesting. And if you don't want to have to read loads of stuff, sometimes you can hear about a whole really interesting thing in an hour. There's one by Bob Pease, which I'm going to say, because I listen to it. It's really, really interesting. And you get the thing of something that might take you years to read in books in about an hour. 
<laughs> well, like, while we're here, we should say as well, if you find yourself in the vague vicinity of Bishop Auckland, uh, come and see Richard's exhibition, because it's brilliant, and it's around for another month or so, I think, isn't it, till November? Um, yeah, but, but for now, thank you. And also, yeah, if you're not in the vicinity, check out his work on social media. We'll put the links in the show notes. Um, but for now, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We'll be back with another episode soon. Um, do recommend Nowman to your friends and colleagues. Subscribe if you haven't done so already. Contact us at nowman at gmail.com if you have any questions, and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye.